This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. This is Women Who Travel, a now not-so-new podcast from Condé Nast Traveller that digs deep into the realities of traveling as a woman today, and celebrates while we'll never stay home. I'm Lale Arikoglu, and this is my co-host Meredith Carey. Hello, hello. And today we are super excited to introduce a very special guest for the episode. Novelist Meg Wallitzer is the author of nine books, including The Uncoupling, The Ten-Year Nap, and The Interestings. Her latest novel, The Female Persuasion, out this month, is perhaps our favorite yet, dealing with notions of female power, adulthood, friendship, and what happens when one woman opens up a world of opportunities for another. We couldn't be more excited to chat with her today. So, hello, Meg. Hello, hello. Like, Thank Lala you. Lala's like banging the, the, the I table. Am. She's so excited. I read the galley of female persuasion in a fever over a weekend and then couldn't stop talking about it. Grabbed Meredith and was like, you've got to read it immediately. And then I gave my very well-read but also nicely wrapped galley to my mom for Christmas. All right. <laughs> and what did she think? She has loved it so far. I think she finished it. It was great, though, because I was reading the galley on the subway. Just, just I think, when they'd been sent out. And this woman opposite me was also reading it. Really? And we just gave each other this, like, nod of, like, <laughs> yeah, we're in the club. What if what if she was your evil twin? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> if I was blonde and tall. <laughs> It was me. <laughs> um, we decided to start this podcast last year because we felt swept up in this really amazing moment um, that was just really celebrating and encouraging women. And and the book just feels really timely. You were writing this before the marches and the Me Too movement, as far as I understand. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I've been writing it for three years. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you can't write a long book in a couple of months. Exactly. Yeah. What was the wave... Or did you feel a wave that was coming? Or was it something that you just felt needed to be told, period? I think that the themes of the book, which include um, making meaning in your life, uh, female power, who has power, who wants it, who gets it, and the person you meet who changes your life forever, are things that I've been thinking about for a very, very long time. And even though this book has landed at this moment, these are old ideas that everybody who calls themselves feminists, I think, have really been thinking about. So, and ideas of misogyny as well. So when it happened to land now, it's almost like a game of musical chairs. The book is out now, which is so strange. But honestly, I have been thinking about this, writing for, you know, in one way or another, about some of these ideas for my whole writing life. I guess I just like, I hadn't really woken up but then, in hindsight, I believed all of the ideas that we're talking about now. I just hadn't really 
like sewn them all together. Yeah, um, and I call myself a feminist, but I guess I just was a very complacent feminist. But at the start of the book, Greer is an 18-year-old freshman, and I identified a lot of, with her journey um, throughout the book, and I saw a lot of myself in her. Throughout the book, she sort of learns how to assert her own female power. Um, and, you know, I'm 29, so in the past 10 years, I've, like, seen that progression happen for myself and I'm interested to know like what would you tell your 18 year old self your version of Greer now oh I have so much to tell her (laughs) if she would only sit still and let me tell her I think that look I've never written about myself in one of my books it's not interesting enough I really really like to be inventive in my novels but like Greer I was kind of I describe her as hot-faced um, you could embarrass me easily. I, I was sort of, it was difficult for me to kind of maybe, you know, speak up in the ways that I was filled with thoughts and opinions without a doubt, but I didn't know that I had, forgive me, the agency to say them. And I wasted a lot of time not sort of saying and doing things that I wanted to do at the moment. And you don't get that time back. But I made up for it. You, you can. I mean, look, everybody's life is stop and start that way. Nobody's life is this straight road where you power through. Even these like young, amazing women who are very, very confident out of the gate, they will find moments of doubt because we all do along the way. But I think I would tell myself just it's okay to take more risks early on, not to have to sort of really impress people and, and be right all the time. I feel like that's something we've talked a lot about in terms of traveling but I think that taking risk goes into a lot of the solo trip which is what women in our Facebook group talk about all the time and something that we've dedicated podcasts to like have you taken solo trips where you have found that you know like power or risk-taking turning points where you felt like you could make those jumps on your own maybe while you were traveling without a doubt I love being alone I have to say I'm married and I have two kids and they're out of the house now and I have been surrounded by boys and men you know it's like that's been this world I'm like Snow White um <laughs> but uh and I've loved that whole experience but as a writer one of the things that I get to do is travel a lot and I have done so for for a number of years and I remember being um <laughs> I was in Banff Canada at a writers festival And I was so excited to be there. The atmosphere, you know, altitude was different. Everything was different. And I went outside and I was alone and took a walk at night. And I found myself pretty much face to face with an elk. And I thought, this is so cool. And I, hi, Mr. Elk. And then I went back to my room later and I noticed things I hadn't noticed before in my room. There was a big sign that said, do not go near the elk. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just like, well, I, you know, I thought this was like this empowering being alone kind of thing. Afterward, I saw that I wasn't meant to do that. I have really loved being alone in hotels around the world. Um, even flying by myself, there's that feeling, that kind of like that new car smell in your brain, you know, like that sense of I am on my own and I'm okay and I can get something done and they don't need me at home. And, or I'm going to pretend they don't need me at home. Although my husband once did kill um, the snail in my child's class when oh I was gosh. in France. <laughs> but we'll leave that be. <laughs> Immortalized on the podcast. I know. <laughs> and it actually, now that I think about it, it's pretty funny that it was an escargot while I was in Paris <laughs> visiting France. I have really felt very much myself traveling alone. And I think that I've almost made kind of New Year's resolutions 
without the New Year's um, while traveling alone that I've really kind of come to see again and again how you can evolve and become a little braver, more open to things uh, when you're by yourself and you don't have to feel self-conscious. Like, how did I seem to other people? When you are traveling on your book tours, you're going kind of all over the place. What would you say is like your favorite or most far off place that you've ever been that you never maybe expected to love as much as you did on tour? Well, I did get invited to the Philippine Literary Festival a couple of years ago, and they had giant billboards with my picture on them. And, I, you know, look, I I know full well how famous or not I am, and I'm not billboard well-known, trust <laughs> me. And there I was, and I was, like, taking pictures and traveling around Manila and seeing these jeepneys going by and I ended up putting the Philippines and putting Manila in particular in this novel. And that's another thing I will say that, that travel has given me is opportunities as a writer. Not that I would necessarily go, oh, well, I want to write now a travelogue about being there. Because I don't. I don't do that. But just knowing more about the world expands you as a writer. And that was very exciting to be somewhere that no one you know, none of my friends had been to. It was I didn't really know what it was going to be like. Whereas some places, if you haven't been to, you know what you imagine from the literature what they'll be like. And this I was kind of like learning on the job. And that, too, is is pretty tremendous. I think that really comes through in the scenes you write in Manila as well. There's the character who arrives not knowing the place. And it is that sense of being somewhere that you're yeah. just completely alien and yep. you, you don't know how to navigate it. That's right. And there have been places like that. I also had gotten invited to um, Montenegro, to the capital city, Podgorica. I have a son who, like, you know, is like Mr. National Geographic and knows everything. And I didn't. But so I got invited to go to a book festival there. And then I thought I have to do it because I don't really know anything. And it hasn't made its way into a book yet. But life is long and you know we'll see um, one of the things that you've written about before is the the different rules for male fiction writers as opposed to female fiction writers and I was wondering when you're on these tours and you're in these other countries kind of what is the response when you say that you're a writer how, how do you do you, do you find do you think you're treated differently um, well, the places that I go are often because I am a writer, so they do know that I am. I don't really go up to the desk clerk and say, hey, have you seen this? What do you think? I'm a woman. Slide a copy over I'm the desk. I'm a woman. Do you think I'm as powerful as Jonathan Franz? Or no? Answer. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, they say. Um, uh, I think that, the, you know, depending on the country, um, there are different relationships to fiction. I mean, you know, we live in such a nonfiction world, most generally, because the news really sort of occupies so much of our reading time. Prose, news prose just sort of scrolls past us day and night. And a novel is something that is special, is is sort of separate from all of that. And you have to really want to read it. And I think that you know, you never know how your book is going to be received in a different country. That's really interesting to me, that you could get wonderful reviews in one country and bad reviews in another. It's kind of like the way a comedian talks about a different room. The world has like is filled with different rooms for a novel. But I think one thing I have found as a writer, I was in Switzerland um, a couple of years ago and gave a reading, and it was entirely like, they. well, I didn't give the reading. I thought I was going to. I like, went up there. And they had an act, a, a German actor or a German language actor um, reading for a very long time. And the audience every once in a while would be, ha, 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 ha. And I had no idea of what they were saying. And then I just sort of bowed at the end. <laughs> <laughs> 
and then they gave me my schlag. I mean, uh, so I, but there was great respect. Like they, it was a very long reading. In some countries, like they, you know, what I, the places that I've been to, or maybe it's just me. They're like read for two minutes. But I found that um, in Germany and in Switzerland, there were really like interesting long, and then a long Q and A. Um, a lot of a lot of attention to the writers and very serious listeners. One thing I'm always fascinated by when I when I'm abroad when I'm traveling um, and I notice this particularly when I go home in the UK is the different cover designs for books yeah that it, and it's starkly different from country to country they'll say to you well our readers wouldn't understand that cover and I don't know like I want to sort of say what do you mean like what is a br- like in England in particular they they do different looking covers a different aesthetic I find when you are going to these places and putting them in and feeling so inspired that you end up putting them in your book how much it is is literal and how much is inspiration that is a really good question um i think that it has to go through the filter of my thoughts and preconceived ideas as and history of what interests me before it can become something that kind of reminds me of there was a great line by flannery o'connor um, she wrote a story called good country people and in it there's a a young woman with a wooden leg and she's like mean to her mother and everybody and she feels superior to everybody and a bible salesman comes and he ends up stealing her wooden leg and audiences were asking Flannery O'Connor well is the wooden leg a symbol and she said before it becomes a symbol it has to be a wooden leg so I kind of feel for me I have to know what it is I'm seeing and understand it on their terms on the terms of the people you know of the Philippines for instance and really try to be very open. Like being open as a writer and being open as a traveler, I think are very similar things. Not sort of trying to put like my preconditions on it. And only later after I've returned and gotten, you know, these experiences that I've had that are new, trying new foods or or learning something about the history, only later will I see how it might work in my work. You're not going into it saying, you know what, this trip to the Philippines no. is going to be in my no, next year. No, no, yeah. that feels so crass yeah. to do it that way. I, I never think of it that way. I just, it'll pop up much later as, oh yeah, that, that trip that, you know. I was, I just was going to ask if you have ever written about a place that you haven't been to. Yes, actually, in The Interestings, my last book, I wrote about Iceland and I hadn't been there at the time. And I went there after it came out to see, oh, God, what did I get wrong? Um, well, that's not why I went there. But I had spoken to people who'd been there. But I, I sent a character off to Iceland um, because it seemed, you know, in the 1970s, and it seemed like a kind of remote place to go. It wasn't chic then to go there. And I had an idea of Iceland that was really different in my mind than, than it really was. So it was... A risk to do that, but of course now with the internet, we ha- we take a lot of license. But you don't want to write what I call a Wikipedia novel, you know, that everything feels like it was, you know, Iceland, which was discovered in blah blah. You know, <laughs> it's like where you go off into sort of facts. Um, but it was it was similar to how I pictured it, and, and a little different too. When you got there, what was the most surprising thing that you maybe hadn't thought of when you were writing? Well, that there were not really tall buildings, like skyscraper Iceland. I mean, it wasn't, you know, that it was kind of low buildings in Reykjavik, um, that it felt more modest, because I knew it was this booming place that, you know, the music industry and 
and I understand, I know that it's gone through a lot of changes, but it was this hot place, but it felt small in a way and, and very manageable. Um, I should have known that. I, I should have I should have done better research, but I think I mostly got it right in the book. Well, if you if you are from Iceland, you can tweet at us and, and argue with Meg. No. <laughs> um, Don't encourage them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Speaking of sending off one of your characters, Faith in the female persuasion, you know, spends so much time um, in her career traveling, giving speeches and campaigning and stuff. And there are certain people that we thought of, obviously, immediately, Gloria Steinem, Jermaine Greer, who sprang to mind. But who were the traveling, working women that you thought of when you were coming up with Faith? Well, I always like to create my own characters, mm-hmm. whole cloth. And in fact, there is only one Gloria Steinem. And exactly. I kind of want to live in a world with a lot of more well-known feminists. I had to sort of create that myself. But it's more its more that, I mean, she is her own character to me. But I think about a lot of the women um, who proceed through the world and are inspiring to other women, whatever you think of them, um, you know, Gloria Steinem certainly has been that way. Hillary Clinton has been that way in her own way. A lot, um, my mother, who was a great inspiration to me when I was a child and remains one to me now, and, you know, hadn't had a formal education and kind of decided to become a writer. So that's kind of going off into the world in, in a different way. Uh, a lot of different women. When you were young, was travel a priority? Because it seems to feature in some way, shape, or form in a lot of what you write about. Was it a priority for your family, or was it something that came up later? We went to Europe for the first time when I was 11, and I was I had I don't think I'd even been on a plane, and I would like I spent hours in the library at school researching what a plane ride would feel like, you know. And I think we took like a. 747 or something it was very exciting. I, I saw pictures of the spiral staircase. And so even the travel part, rather than even the destination, was very thrilling to me. Uh, my parents were, they wanted to give us culture. They really did. And, and, you know, we lived in the suburbs and we would go into the city in our station wagon and go to the Museum of Modern Art. And we went to Europe and did the whole whirlwind thing of the, you know, uh, churches and cathedrals and museums and, and ate food. My father, actually, who he, he and I share a kind of love of interesting food. And there was a there was a store in the mall. The Walt Whitman Mall was my mall in Long Island. There was a store there at the time called Foods of All Nations. <laughs> and this, like, he and I would bond over this place. And it would have, like, Marmite and, you know, whatever from different countries. And we loved it. And things that you, at the time, you couldn't get anywhere. Now you can get everything, like, anywhere. But the world, of course, wasn't like that. I think that as my books evolved, as the world broadened or the possibilities of anything broadened, the world, you know, actual different countries and continents come into play. My novel, The Wife in fact, opens on a plane traveling in which a husband and wife are traveling to Finland. And I actually did get invited to Finland for the 500th anniversary of the Finnish book. And it was an incredible trip, and one that I didn't seek out. But, you know, they sought me out. And who knew at the time? Like, I'm there again. I'm just taking it all in. Like, I went to the library, this beautiful library in Reykjavik, and this woman began to sing to me in the archives from the the, country, the national poem, the Kalevala. And I just had this image of this little woman singing, turning without preamble, singing this poem. And many years later, you know, it pops up in my mind again, and it goes into the book. And, and 
Finland is this place that I hadn't thought of before, really, and there it was. So, um, I don't know, I just sort of try to let things, let, let my own travel experiences filter through me. When you set out to become a writer, you don't really think, I'm becoming a writer because I want to travel the world. It's a sort of added perk that comes along if you reach a point where you get to take book tours and read yeah. at festivals. What if sort of other, you know, Finland sounds like it might be it, but what were some of the most surprising places that your career has taken you? Um, I did go to Australia, New Zealand, and that was, you know, obviously really great and wonderful. And one, and and I met writers. I, I think one of the things about being there was my awareness of how far from home I was. Like I was so far from home. And the, when I, so I met writers in Australia, and then I went to New Zealand, and it's like they don't know each other. They're far from each other. The world is really big, but we connect through books, and I, and that's very moving to me too. But I I don't think I I mean, it's a big trip and an expensive trip, and I hadn't thought to go on my own, so I really jumped at the chance to go. That was really great. Before I could travel independently, you know, as I was growing up, the reason why I learned that there was a wider world out there and one that I wanted to explore was books, reading a lot of books. But it was also because of my mother, who, who um, in the 70s rode a motorbike across the Middle East and Asia and has, like, the most amazing stories. And also fascinating, only has one photo from that <laughs> entire trip. Um, but she kept lots of diaries. Um, so I have this, like, it's all in my imagination what this time was like for her. Um, but she really, like, taught me that there was a lot more to see and a lot more to learn. And I feel like she kind of just opened so much up for me. And you mentioned your mother, but I was wondering if there was a woman in your life, much like Faith was to Greer, who, like, opened the world up to you. Nora Ephron was someone who was important to me. She, her first, the first film she directed was based on my book and we became friends through that. And I would say that she sort of, in, do, in doing, she sets an example for a lot of people, particularly young women. And I saw that happen so many times. She decided to become a director and she was so generous um, when she was trying to put together the film that she invited me to come to casting sessions and to come to look at comedy clubs around the city because the movie This Is My Life starred um, Julie Kavner as a stand-up comic and her two daughters, Samantha Mathis and um, Gabby Hoffman. And she was sort of trying this out for the first time. So I think sometimes it's not even somebody giving you permission but showing you that they do it. And they're not saying now you do it but you later want to do it. So she absolutely did that and that was important. And she's someone who loved adventure and had a really, really interesting life. Meredith, do you have a woman? Oh my gosh. A oh, do you yeah. have a woman? Do I have a woman in my life? Um, I feel like it's a mix. I feel like, you know, my mom who, Lolly and I have obviously both talked about our moms on the podcast before, um, and I 100% know she's listening, um, but I think that she was such a huge influence because she studied abroad and lived abroad when um, before my brother and I were born, and so we grew up with pictures of her all over the place in our house and pictures from Semester at Sea all over the place in our house. Beyond that, I feel like so many of my like journalism teachers and my female English teachers were huge because they made me realize that like writing and 
and writing about other places that were very far from where I was in Dallas um, was an option and something that I could pursue as a career, which I think made me want to actually get out and go because they were there doing it in Dallas and we're like, no, 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 like you should, you should be doing this wherever you are. I want to add, um, not a not a mother related thing, but a sister related thing. Um, my sister took a a year abroad in college, and she's older than me, and you know it was kind of cool at the time. And what I'm about to tell you, don't try this at home. But she um, was hitchhiking around. I I think she was in Denmark at the time, and she got picked up by a bus, and it was a tour bus, and it was ABBA. <laughs> Off. This is true. No. Yes. That, that took a second for me to oh register. <laughs> I was thinking of how to tell you that. And I, <laughs> I was going to like start with ABBA and then I thought, no, no, make that your punchline, Meg. Make that we your just need to take like a moment of silence <laughs> for that amazing piece of information. Yeah. So she got picked up by ABBA. That like needs to be like on her, like it just like everything she ever introduced, business cards, anything. I know. Yeah, one it's time, so great. I know. All up. downhill from there, right? <laughs> it's amazing. And then you know that night they they said to her, you know, they went to a club and they said to her, "Look at you dancing," and she said, "Yes, I'm a dancing queen." No, I'm. No. And that's how the song. No, honestly, totally wouldn't believe. Not. I was like nodding along. Not like. the genesis of that song. Sorry. Oh my gosh. Well, I think that goes back to what we were talking about, about taking risks. If she hadn't been hitchhiking, she wouldn't have had this like incredibly insane once in a lifetime experience. I know, I know. Yeah, and I think the, the trip that my mom took really formed her. And I know that one thing that's a real, real pet peeve she had, not even a pet peeve, it's just something that really pisses her off, is that she did the trip with her boyfriend at the time. They were gone for a year. Um, and a lot of the time when she says it, they're like, oh, was it his idea? Did he... Did he drag you along? And she was like, no, it was, my, it was yeah, my idea. Yeah. You don't get dragged along on a motorcycle. <laughs> For a year. <laughs> you have these like really cool mothers, right? Like, you both have like, these incredible mothers. Yeah, it's, it's so uh, great. I'm sure they well, are my, very excited to hear yeah, that. <laughs> my, my mother, this is not up there with that, but she, um, she's a writer, as I said, and, and she had a translator who she got to know through letters. And she just decided to go visit her, and she went to Sweden by herself and traveled around the archipelago and had this friendship and just this experience sort of away from us. I mean, it's a little threatening when your mother has a life that's more interesting to her at the moment than, than you are interesting to her. But I think it's it makes for a happy parent who can go off and sort of have a life in the world. I think that, I think so. I think a lot about my um, grandmother who had been at the end of the war offered a job in Paris and she turned it down to marry my grandpa and then went and lived on a farm in the middle of Wales for her whole life. Oh, wow. And she was like such a smart woman and so interesting, loved magazines, loved travel magazines, was just so interested in the world. And I, and, and, and I think she's one of sort of many, many women that sort of had a life not lived and I wish she'd had that experience with like a let you know even just like a pen pal with a with a translator yeah. yeah well it really opens up a whole world to you it can really change things the writer Doris Lessing wrote um, an interesting book about her parents life and the first part of the book is uh, fiction about her parents deciding to move to then Rhodesia Zimbabwe and had this farm and what went on at the farm. I hope I'm getting this right. It's been a, it's been a long time. 
and you know that it was this sort of positive story of adventuring and then the second part of the book is what really happened is the nonfiction and and it was not good it was you know a struggle so our sense and our romanticization of parts of the world are so strong in us I think for everybody I think that what you're talking about about her having this like pen pal relationship is really interesting especially in our like 21st century like I'm sure you are fully connected on social media with all of the people who read your books and I'm sure you get lots of feedback good and bad um, from people all over the world how is that relationship like since you started your career how has that relationship with readers with people who are consuming what you are putting out into the world how has that changed over time I'm always surprised and kind of tickled by things. Like just the other day on Twitter, somebody put, look what I saw in a Moscow bookshop. And there was the interestings, but it was like a blue cover. And I didn't retweet or anything. I was so like, oh, um, you know, in front and center in a Moscow bookshop, you, it's kind of a blast. It's really, really weird. I, when I travel, I often do something, this isn't quite to your question, but um, when I remember when I was in New Zealand, I was having like a perfect meal. Like you, the food tastes so much better because you like it more. It's a novelty. I always, my husband will look up the menus of the places that I'm at and like will text me, I would have that. I would have that if I were you. And so we're having a conversation about like what he would eat and what I am eating. And then I'll, t- you know, tell him what I ate and, and take a picture of the sign. We're like, like, you know, like, little, like, it's a little dumb, but it's really, <laughs> really, really fun. Readers um, will send you all kinds of notes about your book. And, and the funny thing about those books is that you don't know the translations. So, you know, they might be a little bit different in some way. I mean, you hope that they are really very faithful. I trust that they are, but it, I don't know what the actual words say. When you, I know that because of the tours, you probably spend a lot of time in bookstores. Yeah. But but when you are traveling on on your own, um, do you spend time going to bookstores around the world, or is that something that just happens because you're on tour? Oh, I love to go to bookstores around the world. I love to. You just, I, I like to just see the things that make a city what it is, and it's of course often not, you know, just the museums at all. But I'll definitely go to bookstores without a doubt. Because I also love to go to bookstores in any city yeah. or country that I'm in but I also really love going to secondhand bookshop bookstores I feel like you get this really interesting insight into the I don't know it's like unpeeling an onion of the city there's sort of notes in different languages in books I know I know I like to buy something like you know and just sort of take it home and remember the moment that I found it I also love if you go to like the English language section. Like I remember going to an English language section when I was in Greece and it was all sort of penguin classics or penguin with their orange spines and buying a book and taking it with me with on my URL pass all over on trains, having this one book and with that I had bought in Greece. Just, it, you know, seeing it again, it triggers something so strong. Yeah, I think it's really, I don't know, I just have certain books that I've, read and reread many times and somehow like reading that book takes me back to like lying on that beach or like being in that house um which is incredible because you're reading about somewhere that's completely different from where you're reading it no i know it's the great thing about 
books do that, yeah. So I'm sort of half-stealing this from my favourite BBC radio show called Desert Island Discs, which I listen to religiously. Um, But if you could bring... and it's vaguely travel related <laughs> if you could bring five books to a desert island you'd somehow travel to this desert island and you're trapped on it what are those five books that you would keep with you if i also had cooking equipment i would bring <laughs> an autolenghi cookbook <laughs> um if i could bring five books um i would bring i would bring a novel by virginia Woolf, who i really love to read again and again because she really was, you know, uh, such an exciting writer and did something that people weren't doing at that time. I would bring a Toni Morrison novel, without a doubt, um, maybe Beloved, maybe Sula. Again, because we're talking about connecting with books that you've read in the past. I might very cleverly bring Best American Short Stories because then I'd have a choice of a lot of things. And then for the fifth book, I think if I thought I was never getting out of there, and this was really the end of my life, I would bring Charlotte's Web because it's the first book that I remember crying over and I would connect with my childhood so I could lie on that beach with Charlotte's Web thinking about my life and that it maybe wasn't all wasted. And those are the books. Oh my gosh, that's such a sweet way to end the podcast. I love Charlotte's Web. I know. Well, thank you so very much uh, for coming and joining us today. Uh, we really appreciate it. Everyone should run out and buy The Female Persuasion out April 3rd. We loved it. Our whole team loved it. Uh, and we think you will too, especially if you're listening to this podcast. You can find me at Oh Hey There Mayor on Instagram and Twitter. And you can find me at Lale Hannah on Instagram. You can find me at Meg Wallitzer on Instagram and at Meg Wallitzer on Twitter. I'm nothing if not consistent. (laughs) Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, You can find all of our work at CN Traveler on Instagram, Twitter, Connie Nass Traveler on YouTube and Facebook and all of the things and cntraveler.com. Thank you so much for listening. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration, a kitchen with no space, a toddler who will only eat buttered pasta, Name your dinner emergency, we're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now.